All right, I better start preaching or there will be a coup in the nursery. We, we, uh, we pushed the line last week, and so we promised to do a better job. If you're physically able, join me on your feet. Let's honor the, the opening passage of Scripture. I want to bring you a message called Kingdom Vision. Kingdom Vision. You have to have a vision of the kingdom. I have to have a, king, a kingdom vision. We have to keep it. You live in a world of distraction, and it's not just bad things that distract us. It's, it's good things. But everything has to be seen through the lens of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, his throne, and the fact that we are citizens, joint heirs with Jesus. It's about identity. It's about who he has made us, who he is making us to be. And so I just like going to the end of my Bible to be refreshed. What is it going to look like then? What are the priorities then? Because I need to export those priorities from then and have them wrap around my now, characterize my life now. So we'll talk about that today. Revelation 5, I'm going to begin in verse number 9. And we're going to cover the verses 1 through 8, but let's open in verse number 9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom, say kingdom, kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign where? On the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Lord, we receive from your word today instruction for our soul. We receive the deepest work that you have determined for each individual, but Lord, I also pray corporately in this local assembly that there might be such a a thread running through our hearts that sew us up into one heart unto you, Lord. I pray next door at 12 Stone. I pray down the street at Crossroads Baptist. I pray up the street at North Metro. I pray down the road at Gwinnett Hall. I pray for every assembly wherein there is a remnant calling out, crying out, and starving for true encounter and a manifestation of the glory of God. I pray for them, Lord. You will not leave them hungry. You will not leave us thirsty. So we praise you in this house today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I want you, even if you don't know exactly what you're asking, to write down near the top of your prayer list, God, grant me a greater kingdom vision. I'm not talking even about a supernatural, mystical, visible in the mind vision. I'm talking about a view, 
an approach to life, an approach to your faith, an approach to your relationships, an approach to your purpose. I'm going to ask you to get bold with God and precise, not just passion, but precision, and say, Lord, give me, me, Lord, your child, a greater kingdom vision. Lord, I want you to do for me what you did for the servant of Elisha when he couldn't see what Elisha saw. Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. Lord, I want you to do for, that, for me what you did for that servant. Show me what I'm not seeing. Teach me what I'm not hearing. Take me where I haven't gone. Stretch me to where I've been previously holding back. Lord, I don't want to be tomorrow what I was yesterday. And so if we're going to get proactive about our faith, let's not, uh, let's not straddle the fence. The only, only thing that happens when you straddle the fence is you get splinters in very weird places. And we don't want to do that anymore. We want to get off the fence. And if we're going to do what we do, if we're going to be who we, who we are to be, then let's take what Colossians 3 says twice and basically summarizing those both together. If you're going to do something, do it with your whole heart as unto the Lord, not unto man. So that means a release and a receiving at the same time. How does that happen? When we really become just dialed in to the purposes that emanate from the throne of heaven and precisely from the lamb who sits on the throne. That's where we're going today. I want to begin, when we talk about the king, there's just three points about the king today, and I want to begin with the beauty of the eternal king. The beauty of the eternal king. I want to start out where we did in fasting and praying this week. The first day was all about humbling ourselves. And so it, it, it soothes, ser- serves us well to take a moment for an opportunity to humble ourselves yet again. I love the enthusiasm this morning. I, I, I love the joy this morning. I love the confidence uh, towards God this morning. But at the same time, I want to make sure that I'm remembering all of that good stuff's not sourced in us, it's sourced in him. So let's be humble for a moment and talk with about this. The king of the unworthy, verses 1 through 4. Look at what the scriptures say. These are verses we didn't read yet, but then John is opening up in chapter number five, and he says, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, there's a scroll. Chapter four was all about the throne. Chapter five is much more about the scroll. Written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Verse two, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? And to break its seals. Now watch verse number three. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Verse number four. And John says, personal testimony here. He says, I began to weep loudly. Weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, obviously, I'm going to start in low gear here. If we're going to be talking about a scroll for several verses, it might behoove us to understand what what is the scroll? Most of you have heard this passage, and I know there's a lot of good uh, input about what this scroll might be, but I'm going to give you, it's just my job to share this morning what God's got on my heart, and let me tell you what I believe about this scroll, because this scroll, once it becomes unrolled and the seals are broken, what happens on earth is the wrath of God begins to be poured out on the earth. We're talking about tribulation, great tribulation aspects. It is the the process that is about to unfold whereby God Almighty glorifies himself on the earth at the end of the age, not through grace and mercy primarily, but through holiness and wrath. And that's not a pleasant thought, but I want you to understand that those of us that are in Christ have escaped the fullness of that wrath. However, this scroll and what's contained therein is the Some have called it the title deed to the earth. I believe it is much more than that. This is what we know about the scroll. The scroll itself 
And, and they were opened left to right, not like that that we do, but left to right. The scroll has seven seals on it. On the outside, John is able to see something written. It is likely that whatever was written on the outside was enough to illuminate John concerning the details that were on the inside. And so John saw enough about the scroll on the outside that when he found out nobody could open it, it caused great grief into him. And so only Jesus, we find out, was worthy to open the scroll. We'll come there in a moment. On that scroll are seven seals, and at the, as those seals begin to be opened in the following chapters, I've mentioned already, the, the, the fury, the justice, the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth. By the time you get to Revelation chapter 8, the seventh seal is going to be open, and at the end of the seventh trumpet, that is at the end of the very end of the seventh seal, this is the message that is given by the angel, and it's found in Revelation eleven fifteen. So when the scroll is fully read, when the seals are all broken, when everything transpires, what is the summary of that, that work from the scroll? This is what the angel says. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So at the end of the seals, the world has become fully God's kingdom. All things restored, all doubt removed, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, the Antichrist on his way to the lake of fire, the beast and false prophet destroyed, Satan beginning to become a permanent, never-ending resident of the lake of fire. All rebellion will be put down. And then at the end of the age, the Bible says that the kingdoms of this world will be leveled and the only kingdom left standing will be the kingdom of God through the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the end of the story. That is where we're heading. And by the way, don't wait until we get there before you start dancing in that and rejoicing in that and celebrating that. You're part of that kingdom now. But at this point in the vision, John is saying, there's nobody worthy. Nobody can open that. How is what's written therein ever going to be enacted? And John begins to weep heavily because throughout the millions and billions of people that have ever lived, the scan produces not one single person that is worthy to enact what is written in that scroll. So John begins to weep loudly. Now go down into verse 5 with me. John doesn't get to weep long because he's about to get a message about what I call the king of uncontested victory. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, stop, look, listen, take note, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I love the fact, this is, and forgive me, I, I, sometimes I'll just kind of give you my thought on this. John's weeping. Everybody else in heaven in that moment is calm. They're, they're throne focused. John is weeping because he is concerned that, that that scroll full of the plan of full redemption will not be enacted. And this is the way I hear it. One of the elders stepping up to John and saying, hey, new guy, Hey, hey, stop crying, man. Stop crying. It's going to be okay. John, you know how sometimes when you cry and you... <laughs> what do you mean it's going to be okay? <laughs> and, and, and the elder says, behold, 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is worthy to open the scroll. And so the elder gets all Jewish on John and brings in this Hebraic language and says, the, the, the lamb, excuse me, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the conqueror, the word there in the Greek is, is the root word from which we get Nike. Some of you got some Nike gear on today. And it's a word that means conquering and overcoming. And then the elder says to John, look, you don't have to cry. We serve the king of uncontested victory. That means, John, you can weep for a season, but some, the morning has come, and the weeping doesn't need to endure anymore. And the lamb is going to come. The lion is going to come. So John is the new guy. Here's the message. Hey, it's okay, man. The lion's got this. The lion's got this. Can I just speak very practically and pastorally to your life? Because... Um, we, we get amnesia sometimes. And in the midst of a trouble and a trial and an assault or a betrayal or a hurt or a deep wound or a sickness or an affliction, sometimes in the midst of our tears, God will send either a faint whisper or a gentle roar, or excuse me, a loud roar or a faint whisper, and he'll just say to you, the lion's got it. The lion has this. And I hope that you can receive that wherever you are today. We'll go down into verses 6 and 7. Because as we're talking about the beauty of the eternal king, and yeah, he's the king of the unworthy. And if you've come to that place where you recognize that you're unworthy, that ought to make you happy because he's your king. Your unworthiness didn't thwart his plan for you. He's the king of uncontested victory. That means whatever we face in the end, it loses and we win through Christ. But he's also the king of perfect sacrifice. Verses 6 and 7. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders... I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now, this is beautiful because uh, the, the Jewish conquering lamb is the Christian's sacrifice, excuse me, the Jewish conquering lion is the same one as the Christian's uh, slaughtered lamb. They're one and the same. It's a beautiful representation of who Jesus Christ is, triumphant and royal and majestic and almighty. But how did that become effectual to us? Because he laid aside that majesty for a season and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in human, like in, under human flesh and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And it's because of that that God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But here is the beauty of it. This roaring lion was also the yielded lamb. And for those here today who have been, I spent years afraid of God because I thought he was not only the roaring lion, I was pretty sure that he was sniffing me out because he wanted to devour me. That's the way I thought about God. Always felt like I was in trouble with God. And so when you think you're in trouble with somebody, you avoid them and you run and run. I did that for so long until by grace and by the work of the Holy Spirit and through the gospel, God opened up my mind that this roaring lion that I had misconceptions about and unhealthy fears of was actually also the sacrificial lamb who came and laid down his life for other sheep. So if you're here today and you don't know this one and maybe you've been afraid of him, no matter what you've done, no matter what your resume has on it, I want to encourage you that he's gentle, he's merciful, and he's available. And I pray that today you'll receive him. Go into verses 8 through 10 with me. Beyond the beauty of the eternal king, I want to highlight in 8, 9, and 10 the activity of the matchless king. He is our 
high priest. We know Jesus so much as prophet and king. I mean, read the gospel and you see him prophesying and proclaiming and healing and working miracles. We read Revelation and we, we thirst and long after his kingdom and we know that his throne will be established and from that throne he will dominate the cosmos, ruling in holiness and love. But so often in this season, in the parenthesis of our life between the prophet who was and the king who shall be, we need to really focus on the reality that he's currently, he's our high priest. He's ministering to us. He's interceding for us. In a very strange way, I hope you'll receive this, he's, he serves us. He, he comes in and, and, and is continually giving himself to us and for us. And so when we look in verse number eight, now the lamb comes and takes the scroll. That happened in verse seven. The Bible says when he had taken the scroll in verse eight, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp. I want you to think of a little, almost like a medieval guitar, a a small guitar, and, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I don't want to rush past this. When John heard from the elder, he heard the announcement of the lion. When John saw, he didn't see the lion, he saw the lamb. And the Bible says that that lamb had a strange attribute to it. There were seven horns. Number seven in Scripture is often indicative of completeness or supremacy. And when we see seven horns, horns are often symbolic of power. And so when I see seven horns on the lamb, I say that may very well be indicative of the omnipotence of the lamb. This lamb standing, though it had clearly had wounds from being slain, and yet it wasn't a weak lamb, it was an omnipotent lamb. It says it has seven eyes, and that speaks to me of omniscience, seeing and knowing. And so this lamb, though crucified and giving himself over to man's hands, it didn't sneak up on God. Jesus didn't get caught off guard. Jesus didn't misstep, but in his omniscience, he knew what the Father's assignment was from the very beginning, and he always wanted to do those things which pleased the Father, and he always did. And he's still omniscient, by the way. He knows exactly what's going on in your life, and he will never leave you to the futility of your own resources. He's omniscient. He knows what he's doing. Just a good time to remind us, we're not omniscient. That's why we are called to walk by faith with the one who is omniscient. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's going to do, and he knows how they tie in together. And then it also speaks, by the way, of the seven spirits coming from this lamb and going out into all the earth, and that's the omnipresence. Why do I bother hitting all of that? Because it is this majestic lamb that walks up to the throne, and you have overlapping images here, and the lamb goes up to the throne, and the one who is seated on the throne So you've got the lamb who is God, the one on the throne who is God, and somehow the lamb receives that scroll, the one John was weeping over, wondering who had authority to open the scroll and to to enact what was written therein. And it is this one who is our high priest, and when he takes that scroll, look at what the elders do. They fall down. And the Bible says as they do, the elders have a harp and a bowl, and in that harp, you, you think of that music. And you think of clearly and instinctually, we think of worship, that the lamb is worthy of our worship that emanates from a bowed down posture before him, a reverence and awe, a submission where we can't dare lift ourselves up as equals or dare lift ourselves up in any pride, but we naturally in the presence of the Lord, there's a part of us that just falls down and worships, but that worship has an outlet. 
Oftentimes when you see the, the, the harp or the, the, the lyre, the, the musical instruments in the Old Testament especially, they were often connected with prophetic elements of prophesying. And what is about to happen through the rest of the book of Revelation is this unfolding and this fulfilling of prophecy. And so the elders are connected and worship and the prophecy that's about to come from the scroll. But it also says that in the bowl are the, the incense. It is the fragrance of the prayers of all the saints. Um, all around the world this morning, you know, we're so blessed. Good night. Just, just take a minute. Look around, just look around. I mean, man, I know that, we, that some of us fasted this week, but we had food if we wanted it. We had shelter. We have every material need absolutely covered. We have freedom not only to worship, but to worship in a climatized room with cushioned seats and beautiful lighting and all of this stuff. And listen, I'm not afraid of anybody busting in today and arresting me for preaching the gospel. That doesn't happen here in America yet. And if it ever does, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. What am I trying to say? We're so blessed, but all around the world right now, do you know that there's the incense and the fragrance of our brothers and sisters praying, God, help us, deliver us, keep us, Lord. Lord, bring us forth from persecution. Bring us forth. We've experienced martyrdom in our village. Lord, we've experienced uh, crucifixions and beheadings all for the name of Jesus. And we find in the book of Revelation that there is this element of God listening to the martyred saints and their crying out, when, O oh Lord, when, O oh Lord, when, O oh Lord. And then the beauty of it is this, though God does not immediately pounce upon an injustice as soon as it happens, though there is often the delay of his activity, and we have to say again, you have the seven eyes, you're omniscient, you know what you're doing, I don't. But when there is a delay, please never let that lead you to think that there will be a final denial of your prayers. Those things will be vindicated. And so these aren't just generic prayers. I believe it's emblematic of the prayers during this unfolding of the, the, the tribulation on earth. The beauty of it is this, is that Jesus personally receives them. He hears you. He hears me. He hears our brothers and sisters. He hears us when we have groanings that cannot be, be uttered with human language. He, he interprets every uh, prayer in a tongue. He understands completely when we can articulate what we want to say. I'm praying with my children so often and they have a praying mama who just flows when she prays and she moves in and out of asking and declaring and sometimes our children are like, oh, I want to pray like mama, I want to pray like mama and I'm thinking even when we don't pray like mama, the Lord receives it with pinpoint clarity. And this fragrance and this incense, he's our high priest. Let him minister to you. Let him stand in the gap. Let him represent you before the throne. Don't come there and confess stuff that he already dealt with as the great high priest on Calvary. He's already dealt with it. He doesn't bring your past sins back up to you. That's the work of the enemy. And so cooperate with the high priest and come before him boldly to find that help, that grace in your time of need. He's our appointed redeemer, verse number nine. They sang a new song. I'm gonna pass to you through this verse in a second. They sang a new song. And here's the lyrics. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It encourages me that the saints of God in eternity future still haven't gotten over their redemption. They're still not bored with their salvation. 
They're still caught up in the wonder that there they are in the presence of Jesus, and now they have a kingdom, a full kingdom perspective, and they recognize, yeah, it wasn't just me and my city and my generation and my country, but now I see every tribe, every tongue, every creed, every nation, every generation. And the the beauty of heaven, I I, I just love this because I thank God for my generation and younger who uh, weren't imbibed with such racial prejudice as previous generations in America were. The younger you get in America, the more likely it is you're free from some of the racial hostilities. And I love the fact that when I look at the word of God, that God doesn't make a a distinction between the, the African believer and the Chinese believer and the American believer, the believer in the third century and the believer in the 21st century. But when, when they have this kingdom scope, they're like every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every race, every creed, Lord, all of us together. And the beauty of it is it so moves them. They say, y'all want to sing a song about it? I'd like to sing a song about it. You write some lyrics. I'm going to get that, that harp out and I mean, let's just go for it. And, and, and we find throughout the book of Revelation, when spontaneous worship happens, um, it looks a lot different than what we do down here. It wouldn't fit into a typical conservative evangelical group of people in the southern parts of the United States. It's just, it's just way too enthusiastic. So we can either do something. I told you I was going to pass you through this verse. Say, Jeff, you're actually meddling. Leave us alone. No, I'm not going to leave you alone. I love you. Folks, we can either keep assuming that heaven's worship is exactly like ours, or we can say, oh, I think we ought to learn from the culture of heaven, and we find out some things. That sometimes it is very loud. Sometimes it is very exuberant, and it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. I was talking with somebody recently, and they're just speaking their mind, a sweet person. I said, yeah, what's up with singing the same thing over and over again? I'm like, oh, you mean like the psalmist did? You mean like our Bible actually shows us? Well, what are you talking about? And they're, they're under the assumption because some fundamentalist told them one time that that's not good singing. They're, they're under the assumption if you repeat something, it's because you don't have anything else to say. And all I want to say is actually the Holy Spirit inspired David on numerous occasions to say the same thing over and over, and that's a songbook. So if you need it, great. If you don't need it, well, <clears throat> pass it along to somebody that does, amen? My point, my greater point is this. They're singing about their redemption. They're more specifically singing about their redeemer. They're saying, you did this. You're the one who did it. You died in an appearance of weakness, but you rose in a demonstration of power. And from that, you rendered inoperative the forces of hell that had held us in bondage all of our existence. You, you took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, and you nailed it to your tree. You, you, you swung open the prison bars. You, 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 you threw the key away. You, you, you shot the warden dead in hell, and you told us that we could absolutely walk out of there and live no longer as prisoners but as free men and free women. And so they're sitting up in heaven, and they said, we got to sing something new about this. And so they did. And the central point of that is that it was by his blood. That's why we don't enjoy religion because we've learned that the best of man's religion still leaves the sinner damned. So what do we do? We say, literally, and please don't think I'm being flippant or cavalier with this, to hell with religion because that's where it's going. Religion will eventuate itself in the pit of hell with every other damnable doctrine that seeks to seduce people into believing that they can earn favor with God. We can't earn favor with God. It must be the blood of Jesus Christ. And that must remain as our theme. So we're not united by lesser loyalties. We're not united by names on a church sign or or movements or translations of the Bible or any of that stuff. 
Ultimately, the theme of the ages is the Lamb of God, once slain, now risen, sitting on a throne, and what his blood, hallelujah, what his blood did for all of us who put our faith in him and that work. So we sing about that and we magnify him for that. Why? Verse 10, he's our gracious sovereign. What he says, he's our gracious sovereign. You have made them. They're still singing to him about what he did. And now the elders, as human representatives, are singing about the redeemed. And they say, you, Lamb of God, have made them a kingdom. Made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Friends, don't run by that. The kingdom is not just territory. The kingdom is not just the eternal state. The kingdom is not simply the fact, and it is a glorious fact, but it's not, the kingdom is not limited to this fact, that the enemies will be put down and destroyed forever. The scriptures teach that because we belong to Jesus, as in the same way that we are, a similar way that we are the house of God, we are the temple of God, we are the body of Christ, we have this new metaphor. We are the kingdom of God. The kingdom is characterized, A, by the king, and B, by his subjects. And so they look forward, these elders do, and in the midst of the song, they look out across every tribe and every race and every nation and every tongue and every generation, and their conclusion is, you took peasants and made them into joint heirs and made them to be a kingdom forever and ever. That is the grace of God. That is the glory of the gospel. So what practical effect does that have? That means as a citizen of the kingdom and a part of the kingdom that I don't have to go fishing for my identity, my purpose, my pleasure, or my passion in any lesser kingdom that will be eventually be destroyed. And so what do we do? Well, not only do we teach our kids this, we need to appropriate this, even if it's a little late in the game for us, that my identity doesn't come from what what my comparisons are to other people in this world. Some of you are beautiful and some of us are not that beautiful. You know what? Who cares? Who cares? And if you're beautiful today, I love you, but gravity is going to have its way with you. You ain't going to be beautiful by today's standard forever. So don't stick your identity in that. Don't stick your identity into money. Don't stick your identity. Listen, men, we love to work. We want to do something. We want to have purpose. Not just men, but men, we are addicted to assigning our validity based on what we can do in any given season of life. No, 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 no. We got to do what we got to do because we got some bills to uh, to, to pay. But, But what you do is not who you are. Who you are is just said right here. You're a purchase of Jesus Christ, and he put the value on us. Not because we, remember, it started out with our unworthiness, so I'm not flattering you here, but he put the price on us. He said, I want her to belong to my father for all of eternity. I'll give my blood for her. She's going to belong. That's your identity, ma'am. Sir, that's your identity. And so he has made us this kingdom of, and priest under our God, and the Bible says again very clearly here, I talked about, going a little bit further past heaven last week. The Bible says right here, we're going to reign on the earth. So listen, we we have some funerals to go to tomorrow, uh, today and tomorrow, precious saints of God. And they are there in the intermediate heaven with the Lord right now through what Jesus Christ has done. But that's not where they're going to be forever and ever and ever. Heaven is wherever Jesus is, and Jesus says, I'm going to come back to earth. And so wherever he is, that's where I want to be. And the Bible says here that at some point and in some fashion, when he comes back to earth, this kingdom that he is making, the kingdom of people, 
We're going to reign with him on the earth. Let that marinate in your soul for a little bit, amen? And say, what is that all about? I don't know. I know where it came from, so it's going to be good, but I can't tell you how, how all of it works out. You know, it's a glorious day in your life where you just accept something from God and you, you don't demand that he give you a full explanation of it before you start enjoying it. You know, you can enjoy a lot of things you don't understand in the kingdom. If you're waiting to understand everything before you permit yourself to enjoy it, you're going to be all spiritually constipated and frustrated and all that. You just, you just need to receive, amen? All right, the ice is getting thin. Let me get to the last point. The adoration of the exalted king. Because we're talking about kingdom vision. Why, why am I even preaching this message? Why in the world am I doing this? I just don't think we can go wrong right now in this season of just keeping Jesus lifted up in front of each other. It's easy to do when you've got a pulpit and a captive audience, but what, I'm, what my, my heart is this, is that something you hear or something the Holy Spirit says, that it'll not just get in your ears, but it'll implant itself and embed itself in the deepest part of you, and that in any advantageous moment in your interactions with others, you just, because this is what we do, we, we look down, oh, man, just pray for me, man, I'm a Christian, I just... You know. <laughs> Everything's not going my way. I just, you know, I'm saved. But just pray for me. And just all you got to do is you got to come along to that person and just say, hey, just I want to show you something there. Look right up there. Can you see the throne? Do you see the Son of God ruling and reigning and loving on you from the throne? Do you know you're part of an everlasting kingdom? Yeah, I know that. No, 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 no. Keep your head up here. And sometimes our heads don't drop. We're not depressed or anything, but, but sometimes we're distracted. And we're just looking over here. We're looking over here. And, and ultimately, as the body of Christ, let's keep each other fixated on the throne. Amen. You know, when, when we're fixated on the throne, we won't quibble and, and, and dispute and fight and get sideways about the silly stuff. Now, we may have to deal with it, but it doesn't occupy our vision. And if your vision is anything other than the king, his throne, and the kingdom, then to that degree that you're misdirecting your focus, you're going to struggle, and you're not going to be able to walk in the fullness of all that God has for you. So I, I would gently say this right now. I'm, I think I probably need to do this in some areas. Repent of the little stuff. You say, what are you talking about? Well, you know, we think repentance is for the axe murderer and the embezzler and the, and the, the serial offender in this area. But isn't repentance for the one who has a complaining heart all the time? You say, well, Jeff, I don't let it out of my lips. Well, we've got some bad news for you. God hears your heart as if you had a megaphone attached to it. So I, I think, and I can do this. I'm not a complainer. God hears it straight from here. So I have to say, Lord, give me a kingdom vision that penetrates all the way down to my heart. So not only are my lips quiet, but the complaint in my heart. How does that happen? Well, it's just continually abiding and listening, and that'll never happen to us accidentally. The future of this assembly and our effectiveness in our community and beyond, I promise you this, hear this, is absolutely dependent on all of us maintaining an allegiance to Jesus Christ and the big picture. We will never again be about the tributaries, the little rivulets that flow and go somewhere but don't ever do anything. We are going to be walking in the river of what God has. Where does that river come from? In Ezekiel chapter number 34, it comes from the throne. And so to the degree that we do that, there will be great praise. 
I've lost my place. I think we're down in verse 11. Yeah, let's just end on a high note. Innumerable, we're talking about adoration here of the exalted king. Innumerable angels worship him. So John's been looking and hearing, and in verse 11 he looks and he hears again, and what did he, he saw around the throne the living creatures, the elders, and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. Now, now watch this. They're loud, okay? Loud praise is okay. It's, it's, it's actually okay. Don't get mad. Don't, don't walk out. Well, I'm not sure. That's a loud church. Well, we ought to be times. There are times for quietness and stillness, but there are clearly times where the best thing we can do is tear it up and let it fly and not hold back. You realize, man, there are, I am running the rabbit trails today. Come on, little rabbit. One of the activities of the devil in our generation, like no other generation before in America, he's trying to suppress us, stifle us, and shut us up. I mean, literally. Well, let them gather in their church houses and, and talk about Jesus, but don't do it out in the marketplace. Don't do it out in the community. Don't do it in the school. Don't do it in the ball field. And so there is this assumption in our culture that Christians just need to shut up Get in our Sunday holy huddle, get it all out of us, but then when we leave the doors, it's their world, and we're, shh, we're not allowed to talk about that. Th there is a Hebrew word for that. Well, let me choose a better one. Baloney, amen? <laughs> Something unholy flashed through my mind, but baloney. It's hogwash. It's nonsense. Not only are we to speak and to sing and to testify and to preach and proclaim, but we are to do it with boldness. We are to do it with a holy confidence that we have the remedy, the answer, and the only remedy, and the only answer to the lasting ills that pervade not only in our country, but all over the world. And so sometimes it's supposed to be loud. And I don't know what it is about the heart of God, but sometimes God just says, it's on volume 10, turn it up one to 11. And he'll stretch even our volume knob. What are they saying? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is him. Nobody on heaven, in heaven other than the lamb was worthy. Nobody on earth was worthy. Nobody under the earth was worthy. Nobody in the sea was worthy. But now we found one, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ the Lord. He will open the scroll. He will execute the claims of God the Father on the entire cosmos. He will redeem fully all of that which Adam and Eve forfeited in the garden when it was put into the hand of the serpent. And Jesus Christ at the end of the age will say to everyone, I'm taking it back. It's always belong to me. It will never again belong to anybody else. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. And so all of creation magnifies him as those myriads of angels do. And all of creation does. Verse 13, John said he heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. I didn't leave anything out. And all that is in them saying, I always hear the song to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And he says, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures say, that's good stuff. Amen. Amen. Have you ever read it? We sing it. We, we brush it. To him, one and only one. Um, it's not a, a president. It's not a sheikh. It's not a, uh, a supreme ruler. It's not a religious guru. It's not a Democrat, it's not a Republican, it's not an independent, it's, it's not a political figurehead, it's not the best that mankind has to offer, it's not any of them, it's only to one, and his name is Jesus, and at the end of the age, every single will will be bowing before him, every creature. I've got a little bit of an imagination. Listen, I, 
I could be wrong. I wouldn't die on this hill. I just believe somehow in kind of a kind of a C.S. Lewis Narnian fashion that me and the chipmunks and the squirrels and the elephants and the the dolphins and the gray whales and the gray hounds and the gray fox and any other animal. I just think at the end of the age, there's going to be some translation and that we will all be praising the Lord together. Now, again, I could be wrong or maybe medicated. I don't know, but I just see at the end of the age, the Bible says that every single creature is going to be ascribing to Jesus Christ goodness and glory and greatness and power. Why? And it's consistent with the purposes of God. Why did God make the animals? Why did he make the natural order? Why did he make the celestial and the terrestrial? Why did he do it? For his glory. And so in some way at the end of the age, all of this comes together in a climax of praise to the Lamb of God, the only one. I ain't waiting. I'm not, man. Good not alive. I'm halfway done with my life. I wasted a lot of years trying to toe the line and It just doesn't work. So the redeemed of the ages bow before him. Worship team, will y'all come on up and just prepare us a time for altar ministry? The redeemed of the ages bow before him. Just says the elders fell down and they just worship. Really proskuneu is the word there in the Greek. It's just to put themselves in a low position, not because of some unholy fear, but because of some deep, weighty awe, the glory of God, the doxa, the kavod. In the, in the Hebrew, it indicates a weight. If you've ever wondered why people raise their hands, it has biblical origins. And in Hebrew culture, one of the reasons they raised their hands was often with palms up like this because it was an outward expression of the kavod of God, the glory of God. It was so weighty as if some great weight was coming down on them. And so when, when, we, when we think of the weight and the glory of God, at least spiritually and sometimes physically, it just brings our posture down into the reality of our own smallness where we find security, where we find a, a, a sense of God's presence, where, where, where we know that we can be small, we can be in the proper sense Weak. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to understand or have all of the abilities, but there is a, a beauty in just falling down before the Lord. I would say this, it should happen at times in your private worship. It will happen at times in public worship. I dare say it's already happened here many times where you just look at and somebody's just, just prostrate before the Lord and just saying, God, your glory is so immense. And I just want to tell you, that's okay. It's entirely healthy and appropriate as long as it's being motivated by kingdom vision. Keep your heart centered on the throne, the lamb upon it. He will come again. And when he comes again, I don't want to be caught off guard. I don't want to be distracted. I don't want to be self-consumed. I don't want to be sending myself flowers because I think I've got it too bad in life. I want to say, Lord Jesus, I've been waiting. I've been anticipating. You've been promising, and now the moment is here. You have been our everything, and forever you will remain so in Jesus' name. I want you to stand to your feet. Let's stand together. A time of worship, a time of submission, a time of receiving, a time of of confession.
Maybe you can say, I wrote down at the top of my prayer list, God, give me greater kingdom vision. Why don't you come this morning? It's not beyond the Lord to impart it to you in a moment. God reserves the right to flip the switch in our lives and what we didn't see walking in here, we will see walking out.